Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And in this episode, we interview Dr. Sue Lynn Blodgett about definitions of bias in natural language processing systems and beyond. How do we define bias? Is all bias the same? How does bias impact the stakeholders of natural language processing systems? Is it possible to eliminate bias completely in our AI systems? Should we? Sue Lynn Blodgett is a postdoctoral researcher in the Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics, otherwise known as FATE, group at Microsoft Research Montreal. She is broadly interested in examining the social implications of natural language processing, or NLP, technologies, and in using NLP approaches to examine language variation and change. Sue Lin previously completed her PhD in computer science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. This was a really exciting conversation for us to have because last summer, so in the summer of 2020, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Emily Bender, who is an amazing scholar in the field of natural language processing. And we had an episode with her on basically the 101 of NLP ethics. And so we see this conversation as a continuation of that dialogue where we dive a little bit deeper into some of those topics that we brought up with Emily, especially on this topic of bias. and. There's a lot of really interesting stuff here. So we are so excited to share this conversation with Dr. Sue Lynn Blodgett with all of you. Today, we are on the line with Sue Lynn Blodgett. Sue Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And today, our topic of interest is bias and the power of definitions and language. So why don't we kick it off with our first question for you, Sue Lynn, which is, in your own words, how do you define the word bias? Oh, man, what an impossible and good question. Um, So for me, there is no um, single definition of this, and the NLP community has approached this in a lot of different ways. Um, So maybe it would um, be helpful for me to illustrate some of those. So so first I should say, before I get to um, thinking about this, a lot of work has emerged in um, the NLP community thinking about this in the last few years. So even though we have a long way to go, I want to acknowledge all the work that people are putting into this right now and to say it's really exciting to see significant emerging awareness of, you know, quote unquote bias in NLP. Um, so for me, what I'm seeing is that in many ways, in NLP bias has come to refer really broadly to just undesirable system behaviors. Um, and what you find when you dig in is that researchers and practitioners actually really mean a whole bunch of different things when they say bias. Um, and I'll give some examples. Um, so in, for example, in sentiment analysis, where the goal is to predict the sentiment of a piece of text, for example, if it's positive or negative or neutral, researchers have found that systems give different predictions for sentences with names associated with different genders. So for example, Amanda feels anxious because Adam feels anxious. Um, and the same is, uh, and they get different predictions for how positive they are even when they really shouldn't because they are basically the same sentence. Um, and the same is true for names associated with um, being African-American versus European-American. Um, so elsewhere, toxicity detection systems, where the goal is to predict whether a piece of text is toxic or offensive, right? So they treat sentences that mention disability as toxic even when they shouldn't. So for example, the sentence, I am a deaf person or I am a person with mental illness gets high toxicity scores, right? Even though they're obviously, they're plainly not toxic sentences. Um, 
Automatic captioning systems exhibit higher errors for people speaking in accents or language varieties that aren't mainstream US English, for example, spe speakers from Scotland. Um, and one last example, and these are all awful examples, but this one is particularly awful. Um, some large state-of-the-art language models like GPT-3 produce very harmful ideas about different people. Um, so it's been shown that when given prompts referring to Muslims, GPT-3 almost always refer, uh, generates text talking about terrorism. And when given prompts referring to, say, a transgender woman, we've seen it generate text talking about how she's not, not really a woman. Um, so I think all these examples uh, are sort of illustrative because we can see that when we as a field say bias, we really are referring to quite a wide range of different system behaviors. Um, and really because language is connected to identity in our social world in so many ways, right? And this comes out in how we think about bias. So sometimes we're talking about issues in how NLP systems treat language about or describing different people. For example, horrifically Islamophobic or transphobic ideas. Sometimes we're thinking about how NLP systems treat names associated with different groups. Sometimes we're thinking about how NLP systems treat language produced by different groups of people, right? Like with the automatic captioning. Sometimes we're concerned, sometimes bias means um, a system is exhibiting different error rates for different kinds of language. Um, sometimes it, bias seems to mean that we are treating certain kinds of language differently. So however positive my um, system thinks Adam is anxious as we're giving a different prediction for Amanda is anxious. Sometimes it means that systems are just, you know, producing certain kinds of language at all that we think are harmful, right? So, so um, I think bias has come to kind of encompass like a whole wide range of kind of different um, things, you know, system behaviors, properties that we find undesirable. So I'm curious why this matters, right? So we talk about bias, right? I'm not challenging that this matters, but I'm just, I'm curious from your perspective, right? Like how we talk about bias obviously changes how we might implement certain design decisions around that bias. But from your perspective, like why, why is this, you know, what you research and like, why, why does this really matter out in the world? Right, right. That's a really great, that's an important question. Um, so from my perspective, the language that we that we use to describe things really helps is important um, because it shapes how we think about right and address these things. So I think there's two places this happens, right? One, um, being really precise about what we think is harmful helps us reason about the harms more, right? So just in terms of what we want model behavior to look like, what we think is harmful, who might be harmed, right? The more precise we can be, the more kind of carefully we can reason about these. And it also helps because the more precise we are, the more we're able to draw on all this work outside NLP that has thought about these things for a long time, right? So language is involved in our social world, right? And it's deeply, like these connections are really deep and people have thought about these for a very long time. So the more careful we are, the more precise we are about these mechanisms, the more we can also draw on all this work. And also, um, the more precise we are, the better we can think about how we are like measuring or mitigating these things, right? I mean, if you say racial bias, right, this doesn't really help you think about how good is the way, you know, is the way that I'm measuring racial bias really what I'm after? Is the mitigation really what I'm after? Are there aspects of this that I'm not capturing effectively through my choice of measurement, right? And I think being very precise and saying, oh, I'm after stereotyping, I'm after, um, just performance differences. I'm after the erasure of certain topics or perspectives, right? Like that allows you to be quite precise about like normatively what you think the harm is and also how good of a job you think you're doing um, at measuring or mitigating. 
You keep using the word measuring, which is something that Dylan and I have been focusing on a lot lately. Um, we have a new series called Measure Mentality. And so we, we were thinking about this in the context of bias before this interview. Ooh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you, uh, you should definitely check it out. Also, other listeners, shameless plug. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> um, yeah. But something that uh, I'm wondering with the measurement of bias, because you are talking about the importance of precision and, uh, you know, I guess somewhat standardization and, and a common definition. And so I'm wondering, do you think that first it is, is it possible for there to be a common definition for something like bias in NLP? Um, and if so, is that good or bad? That's a good question. And I think there's a couple of things. There's a couple of things I want to like uh, draw out from that. So one is that I don't think we need a single way to describe bias, right, or a single a consensus, because what we're finding, right, when you dig into all the ways people think about bias, is that we we what you know is that the language we we need more precise language, right? We need a language that is more precise than bias to describe each of these things, um, because they're about different groups of people, different kinds of language, different kinds of model behavior that we're worried about, you know, how to specify, right? So this variety should encourage us to be more granular and more precise rather than to come up with one single overarching way to describe all of it at the same time, because that's just not possible, right? Social groups and are not exchangeable, right? The different harms that people might experience are not really the same. And so we should have the vocabulary, right? The ways to think about that, that are not, you know, just bias. Um, but at the same time, I think this, so this measurement aspect, right? Um, is useful and there are way, things that we can draw on to kind of unify in how we talk about this. For example, um, one thing that I do a lot in my work is to draw on kind of framework of measurement modeling from quantitative social sciences, right, which offers some language for carefully thinking about, um, it's, it's really like a framework for thinking about what it is you want to measure. So in this case, we're worried about bias or harms and how good of a job you're doing at measuring it. And so this doesn't really, uh, say this is the one way to measure bias, this is the one way to think about bias, but it does offer you a language for um, very carefully thinking through what it is that you're after and how good a job you are at capturing what it is that you're after, right? And this kind of vocabulary, right, can help us as we're, you know, publishing these approaches that are trying to put them in practice, like really compare them against each other and have like this kind of shared vocabulary in a useful way. There was this idea that was uh, in vogue a few years back and maybe still is that bias is bad, and therefore the goal of our algorithms should be to mitigate that bias, or if we can, just get rid of that bias completely. Like, let's make our algorithms have zero bias in them. Um, and I'm wondering what you think of that argument, whether it's possible or whether that should be how we're thinking about bias at all. Yeah, um, so first I'll say, yeah, that I think um, it's thinking about, you know, like bias and wanting the, the, the goal of our work maybe is de-biasing or removing bias is probably not super fruitful because if we see there's so many different harms that systems can give rise to, different issues that systems can give rise to, right? That like, you know, thinking about bias as like a single thing can't possibly capture them all, right? And maybe lulls us into kind of a false sense of complacency about, you know, how good of a job we're doing, right? Because we want these to be sort of iterative processes. We always want to be on the lookout for these things. Um, I also think there's like a, the way we framed bias sometimes um, is, you know, also kind of misses out on some things that we're not capturing really well that we might care about. So I think um, one thing that's true about um, quote unquote bias is that it often kind of locates like problems at like the point of decision making, right, for a system, right? So all of the examples that I gave are issues of the system at the decision making time, right? The analysis that looks at how a sentiment analysis system is treating different kinds of language. And sometimes when we say, you know, we want to, there's bias in the model or bias in the system, we want to remove that bias, we're really not thinking about questions like, 
um, it was like this mode of analysis doesn't really help you understand how these different decisions actually impact people. Like who is actually harmed when the system is deployed, right? How do people's lives change? Um, and so thinking about debiasing a model in some sense, like almost, um, I think we risk like this, it, it isn't guaranteed to lead to this, but I think it risks this mode of analysis where you don't really think about what the harms are to people. Um, and I can try to give some examples of those things where I think those, if, if you're interested, I think where those give rise to different questions than just like, um, you know, uh, um, questions right at the point of decision making. Yeah, feel free to, to share uh, those examples. I think that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So one fun one is um, for speech recognition um, in, in cars. So we know that speech recognition systems work less well for people with higher pitched voices and car makers have actually acknowledged this. So um, speech recognition in cars don't, you know, tend not to work for women as well as for men. And when I was looking this up, I found one proposed solution from CarMaker is, I quote, many issues with women's voices could be fixed if female drivers were willing to sit through lengthy training. Women could be taught to speak louder and direct their voices towards the microphone, um, which is both insulting, but also could be catastrophic if like your voice recognition system in your car just like doesn't work when it's supposed to, right? Like you could think about this, right? Or um, we've also seen examples, right, where um, NLP systems are increasingly used in, for example, hiring contexts, right? So you can imagine resume filtering systems, um, but also per perhaps like interview um, like situations, right? Where your speech perhaps is being evaluated, right? And I think there are questions of um, what are the impacts on different groups of people, right? Like when these systems are being deployed. Um, and I also think, um, I think one other example that I like a lot is this example of toxicity detection systems again, they, in which we know they treat mentions of disability as disproportionately toxic. Um, we also know that they also, these same systems treat minoritized varieties of English um, as more toxic than mainstream US English. So I think when, if you step away from thinking about just the system output and towards thinking about like what the consequences of the system deployment are, um, you can think of actually quite a few things that might happen, right, when this is used in content moderation systems, right? One, there's like the, you know, if you're a person writing about disability or a person writing in a minoritized language variety, right, there's like the indignity and frustration of maybe your, like, your, your posts get deleted, right, like very often, right? So there's that immediate frustration. Um, and there's like the accumulated impacts of these things, right? Like how does disproportionate removal of mentions of like toxic uh, of disability, right? Impact public discourse, right? How does it a make it feel like may, you know reproduce ideas that disability is not maybe an appropriate topic for public discourse, maybe on social media platforms? How does it impact people to the ability to talk about these kinds of things online? in a way, in a free way, right? If these things are disproportionately removed, how does it affect um, uh, um, efforts towards, for example, like public like recognition of like, you know, disability rights, right? And like, you know, efforts towards legislation and stuff, something. So there are kind of multiple kinds of harm that's not just the system doesn't work well for me, but but also there's the dignitary harm of the system doesn't work well for me. There's like the public participation sort of harm that like other people can't see what I write, right? And we are reproducing ideas about what kinds of language, what kinds of topics are acceptable and um, available for public discourse um and so and these are important because they reproduce very old like hierarchies right so um there are very old hierarchies that uh that devalue minoritized or non-standard varieties of english for example um, and we risk kind of reproducing these exact same um uh hierarchies that, that continue to devalue these ways of producing language would you be willing to talk more about uh, toxicity systems? Content moderation has been in the news 
a lot recently. Um, and I'm just curious about how these toxicity systems work, especially through an NLP and I guess NLP bias perspective. Yeah. So, um, I don't, I should, I should say just by way of disclaimer, like my, my main area, I don't work on, um, toxicity. So I'm some familiar, I'm familiar with some of the work on kind of biases, um, or harms kind of possibly arising from toxicity detection systems, but I don't really, I don't work on them, but, um, I do think they are super important. Um, in part because the ways the the toxicity systems that are likely encountered by most consumers, the most users as parts of content moderation systems online are actually pretty opaque um, to researchers. So we have some idea of how it is that they probably work. Um, but, um, you know, we don't they're 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 largely black boxes. Right. So we can um, only kind of examine the outputs. So um, I guess I'll say a couple of things. One is that um, these systems, like a lot of other NLP systems, right, are it's like a supervised task, right? So they are trained in a way such that you gather a large data set of language that you think is toxic or abusive or offensive. And these definitions do vary, and there are consequences to these different definitions of what we think is harmful, of harmful language. Um, but largely, you gather this data. Um, it is often, it is usually annotated, um, so perhaps by crowd workers. Um, is like one often common paradigm, right, for whether or not this language is, um, is hateful or abusive or toxic. And then you train systems on this text. Um, there are a lot of, I think one thing that's really important and interesting to me is that there are tons of design decisions, right, that go into this process that really affect the outcome. Um, for example, um, if you, you know, how do you get the data set that you're training on in the first place? How do you just, you know, if you say, I need a data set of abusive or toxic or hateful language, how do you get this? One way you know, you can imagine, right? One way to do this is by keyword searches, right? But this sort of like limits what you can train your model on to things that are like very overtly hateful in ways that you already know about. Um, you could ask for you know things that people have previously reported perhaps as hateful, right? But this might also constrain what you get in some in, in some way, right? And it's maybe dependent on what people have reported and like what the affordances of the larger like content moderation like system are, whatever. Um, and so all of these things kind of have, you know, and, and these things and also who your annotators are and what their experiences are um, will um, affect this. I think one other thing that's useful to note is that um, there are, you know, I, I alluded to this when I mentioned um, definitions of toxicity or hate speech or whatever matter a lot. And they do because um, uh, harmful language, right, uh, on social media platforms or other places um, can take a lot of different forms. And so what you consider within the purview of your system, right, um, changes from system to system, and that's important to think about. So um, most systems consider very overtly hateful language, use of slurs. Um, things like microaggressions are really hard, um, both because it's hard to get a data set of them, it's just, it's just subtle language, right? It's much more difficult, you know, just to pinpoint them as hateful things. Um, there are other things that are very, like, um, sort of forum dependent. Um, or location dependent. So right in general, like talking about like, um, like bodies is not harmful, but in like some like maybe like forums dedicated to um, like survivors of eating disorders, it is harmful, right? And that's prohibited. Okay, so that's like very specific. Um, so all of these things contribute to the challenges of developing, you know, appropriate and effective toxicity systems. And I think the last thing I want to say is that I think it's really important to think about these systems in the context of the larger content, you know, larger systems that they form a part of, right? So uh, there's like there's usually like a larger content moderation system, right? Of which the NLP portion is only like a small portion, right? There's like some model that does something, but that operates as part of a larger system 
that can look like a lot of different things, right? Users have many different ways of reporting hate speech. There are lots of actions users might be able to take, right? Like there might be the consequences you might choose for, you know, um, for people, you know, are different, right? Sometimes um, the, the decision is I'm going to delete hateful posts and sometimes the decision is I'm just going to quarantine you for a while or post, you know, so like the, there's, it's how appropriate or like a, a good a job a toxicity system um, does also has to be considered like kind of in the context of like whatever kind of holistically whatever this larger system is um, and I think that's like a that's also kind of like a mode of analysis that um, that maybe we underutilize in NLP but not you know for example in HCI and social computing where folks have been thinking about these things for quite a long time. I've been having some conversations recently about uh, AI systems that exist in very complex environments and uh, whether or not they're actually useful. And so um, when you're talking about toxicity, I'm thinking about like ground truth labels and how it's very difficult to make an AI system when there is no uh, ground truth to go off of. And uh, one example that comes to mind for me of this is trying to make an AI system that predicts uh, if people are going to be happy because the the data that goes into the, making that system is, you know, labeling whether people are happy or not. And happiness is such like an arbitrary and contested, uh, you know, thought, a, a word and also experience. And so um, with toxicity, it's also making me think about that, like how how do we even come up with ground truth labels for toxicity? And um, if we can't, if there's no way to avoid the inherent bias, should those systems exist in the first place? Are they still worth it? What do you think? Yeah, totally. That is a fantastic question. And I think it is the case for lots of these complicated um, NLP tasks, things like toxicity or sentiment, but also things like, you know, is that my chatbot empathetic? you know, um, is this in like an appropriate response? Even is this a good summary of something, right? I think um, there are a lot of, um, for I think a lot of these tasks or settings, um, it is almost always gonna be the case that people will disagree, right? Because this is the nature of language, right? Language, like we, we like the way we do language, right? Like arises in our interpretations of other people's language, right? What we think language means, like comes out of all of our, it's our lived experiences, right? It's super subjective and contested sometimes. Um, it, it varies a lot based on cultural and geographic context, for example, right? And so um, there is, there. I think there's important questions about um, trying to make, you know, maximally portable um, or scalable um, NLP solutions, um, because it is almost always the case that you know people will not agree, um, you know, completely if something is toxic or not. Right, it depends a lot on context um, and on your own lived experiences. Right. Um, so I, th I think this raises a lot of questions because the NLP pipeline typically sort of like uh, does assume like one right answer, one ground truth, like label or, you know, prediction or something for everything. And so I think this raises not just questions for, um, you know, how you annotate, right? And then maybe you just allow different answers, but also what the problem formulation is in the be to begin with and also then how you model it, right? Are all, you know, do you treat all answers as equally valid, for example, right? And I think different settings, this will, might look different, right? For hate speech, you might decide if at least one person thinks it's harmful, maybe it just is harmful, right? Like, I don't wanna quibble and try to figure out whose is, you know, perspective is most valid, right? But there are other things like, um, um, I think one um, really uh, illustrative example from like the recent kind of US context raises is a state phrase like all lives matter, right? Like, do you keep this in a forum or not, right? And it's like, you know, who, like, you know, who might be harmed? 
by having this, right? And like who's part, you know, and so this is some, a question that's really important because like, um, uh, d you know, the perspectives of uh, who is annotating for is this like harmful or appropriate or some, uh, something like that um, matters a lot. And there may be, it may be that there's no decision you can make, right? Whether to keep that in your forum or not, right? Or social media platform, there's probably no decision that'll satisfy everybody, right? Some people will be upset if it's removed and a lot of people will be harmed if it's kept up. Um, and I, I think what this illustrates, right, is that um, I think heretofore, I think we've assumed that there is like a obviously right decision or a neutral decision for a lot of these things. I think what this illustrates, right, very starkly is that a lot of the time there is no neutral decision. Um, and, um, but you still have to make one. And so the question is, like, what processes do you effectively develop, right? Who's to, you know, bring in per meaning, like perspectives in a meaningful way, right? Um, to make that decision. Um, but yeah, I think this is a fantastic question. I think it um, raises tons of questions, like, you know, like beyond just toxicity for just like, how do we do NLP at all, right? If all our models assume there's a right answer, right? And there are, there are people thinking about this in other settings, for example, in um, natural language inference. So this is the task where given two sentences, right? Just the first until the second. Um, and a lot of people sort of, you know, like don't dis disagree on some interpretations, right? If the first sentence mentions um, a woman and the second mentions a girl, right? Does that, does the first until the second? I don't know, some people would say yes, some people would say no, right? But it depends on your world understanding of what woman and girl means, right? Um, so um, yes, I think this is like an exciting time because there are people starting to think about like, okay, these disagreements exist because, you know, we live in the world and language is hard and complicated and contextual. Um, how do we rethink NLP to account for this? One uh, one thing that you mentioned is this, you know, the, the mythos that language is neutral. But, you know, what we know is that language is created in like a real time and real place and like a specific context. Um, and there's a whole, I mean, language is political to a certain degree. Like there's power behind it, even in how it's created. And I'm wondering from your perspective, how we, I guess, contend with that. Um, because in NLP, people are making decisions about what language means. And like you're saying, it's weighted in certain ways. And so I'm wondering if like, there's a, a power analysis of all this and how do we make sure that there's like either an equality of voices represented or at least a diversity of voices represented in that um, description or creation of power. Yeah. Um, so people have outside of NLP have thought about this for a long time. So, you know, um, I think particularly a linguistic anthropologists, but also a lot of disciplines, sociolinguists, um, educators, um, um, and of course, like folks, you know, whose uh, sort of like existences, right, like, you know, sort of by nature, like require this kind of power analysis. So, you know, like indigenous folks, right, like black communities, right, have and in, in thinking about language have thought about these things and written about them for a long time. Um, and this is where I think NLP, I think, could benefit a lot from drawing from all of this thinking. And so I, th I think there is um, like considerable evidence that who gets to control language use really is a function of power, right? And so Jane Hill, um, uh, um, who wrote this wonderful book, The Everyday Language of right White Racism, one of, the, one of the examples that she brings up is um, kind of controversies over um, the naming of a, a kind of offensive naming of like certain landmarks, right? So um, there was one landmark um, uh, that there was like one mountain um, that had a very like a name that was very offensive and I won't say it to like the to indigenous people living there um, but it had been used a long time by like the white residents and so it's like this controversy erupted and what Jane you know what what Dr. Hill really showed is that um, that 
there was considerable resistance, right, to relinquishing kind of like control over the naming of this thing, right? That like, and there are all kind of arguments were proffered, like, oh, it's, you know, it's always had this like sort of offensive name, like, you know, but all these kinds of things. But really what it came down to is, right, like, um, we, we don't want anybody to tell us that we can't call it this, right? And, and in this case, like, you know, um, the, the, the choice of like who gets to decide like what this feature was called was really a question about like who gets to control language, right? And um, that has always in the in United States history and I think like globally, right, placed white people at the top. Um, yeah, and so um, definitely I think, uh, the, and, and they're like for NLP systems, there is kind of emerging work thinking about how NLP systems also kind of shift power in the sense that they do kind of participate in in, in several ways. One, they, they reproduce ideas about people, right, and languages, right, and those are important because those kind of support, you know, um, the distributions of power and resources, right? Um, and I can say more about that. I think another is like, um, for example, if you're, um, machine translation system or you know Google Maps right like has particular names for particular landmarks right in some sense right like that almost controls like what those things are called right because this is what a lot of people who go to a new place will see right and so um, this is like a kind of a stark example of technology and language use um, that can shift um, how language is used yeah as far as your question about um, about inclusion I think inclusion is tricky, right? You've probably um, already thought about this a lot, right? But there is also a lot of thinking about the politics of inclusion, right? How inclusion um, is necessary, but not sufficient. And how inclusion, um, right, that uh, just bring people, brings people in, but without really meaningfully shift power actually ends up being um, a thing that looks like change that isn't change, right? And it really is like hides the fact that real meaningful change hasn't happened. Um, so I think, uh, when you th think about um, and and in both kind of in, in both kind of like um, the the AI technology space more broadly and also in um, you know like uh, linguistic anthropology work for example there's a lot of evidence that right like just because you are you bring in different like language varieties right doesn't mean that you value them anymore um, so we can see right we in um, there's great work in linguistic anthropology that shows that. Um, we might value different language varieties, right? We might value African-American English, but we t don't actually dismantle larger ideas about like what this variety is and who speaks it and um, you know what we think good or standard language is, which means that the net result has been that some people get to borrow African-American English without paying the penalty for it, but people who actually speak this variety, right, um, don't reap any of these benefits, right? So the inclusion, you know, just saying my system will now include this language variety, right, doesn't actually meaningfully change anything for the speakers of this language variety. I think one straight one answer that looks very straightforward for these questions of bias or harm or whatever will look like let's um, include um, bring some more people to the table and let's also maybe just include these other language varieties that we've ignored, right, these other communities, and um, there are ways to do that, right, that still don't really. Um, that don't really amount to like meaningful change, right? And that could like incur additional harms, right? This kind of appropriation. Um, so uh, it is, I think, possible to develop processes that really meaningfully shift power. Um, but we, I think we need to be very, very careful about what those look like. Yeah, let's talk about 
power, actually, because <laughs> we love talking about power on this show. And you did mention earlier that a lot of this has to do with the distributions of power and what I'm guessing are probably unequal distributions of power. And um, one of the great things about NLP is that even though on the show we talk a lot about topics that are like highly theoretical and maybe these futuristic ideal concepts, but NLP exists today in the systems that we use all the time, you know, like Facebook, Twitter, social media is all full of NLP. And so um, taking this from like theoretical to practical, what are the distributions of power that exist in the systems today? Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. So let's talk about how NLP systems participate in different social arrangements. Um, so I think there's, there's a couple of ways um, they can do this. I, it actually, I don't know if your question is about like the distributions in like how kind of these things are constructed or in their in like how they affect these distributions in their outcome. But I guess I'll start with the latter and then maybe we can talk about the former. Um, so I think there's a couple of ways that NLP systems can and, and you know, none of these are should be like, you know, are new in the sense that like these in many ways look like how language has always participated in the in various unjust social arrangements, right? This just like new kind of maybe it just looks shinier now. Um, so one way is um, what um, I and um, actually folks, other folks at MSR who really um, came up with this um, way of talking about these, which is allocational harms. So um, this, these are harms that might arise when a system kind of, um, when systems kind of distribute resources or opportunities, right? And so this is a lot of what like the fairness in machine learning and AI has thought about, right? Credit, um, hiring, this kind of thing. And we think, I think it's entirely possible that NLP systems can participate in these kinds of things, right? So language has often acted as an institutional gatekeeper for allocating resources and opportunities, right? Who gets, um, who gets citizenship? Who can immigrate? Um, who gets access to um, good medical care, right? That they understand. Um, uh, who um, gets penalized in the educational system, right? Like who gets admitted to like universities? Right, um, all of these kinds of things, um, and so, and we know that language, you know, so we know that language is used through these kinds of things, right? For example, um, uh, the citizenship tests for lots of countries like are involved like a language component, um, uh, and you know, hiring has always considered often, you know, impl is implicitly or explicitly considered somebody's communication or language skills, right? So there's a possibility that you know. Oh, it's, I think it's likely that um, as NLP systems maybe get deployed in some of these contexts, that they will also kind of affect different people's access to these kinds of things differentially. Um, the open question is, how do they do that? Right? We don't actually really know where it is that NLP systems might be deployed in these settings and what the outcomes are. I think another kind of set of harms that we can think about are what we've been calling representational harms. So they're really, and I think these are maybe more not almost more intuitive because in many ways language is about um like you know representing the world right and so representational harms like can arise right when systems um subordinate different social groups not by differentially allocating opportunities or resources but representing them in different kinds of ways right so um this can happen when um, people in different groups or people are stereotyped but also when people are erased right when it may when um, different um, topics or different ways of doing language, different language varieties are erased from kind of public view when people are unable to participate in public discourse, right? When certain language varieties are stigmatized, right? When you say, you know, oh, African-American English is offensive, right? Well, it's not, um, but, um, but, it's, but it's been viewed throughout US history as like a less um, valid form of language, right? As wrong or um, deficient. So, um, and I think it's very straightforward to see how NLP systems can participate in these kinds of things, right? Like the accumulation of 
um, a toxicity system treating mental disability as toxic or treating African-American English or language as toxic, right, um, does, can very easily result in these kinds of things. Um, I'll also note too that it's not just system output, right, um, that we can think about, but also just NLP systems and, and practices more generally. Right, so the fact that um, resources for developing NLP systems just don't exist, right, for most of the world's languages, languages and language languages, um, just just means that you know whatever harms that these technologies can give rise to, there's also tons of people who just never can't, can't get the benefits, um, and those benefits are unequally distributed. Um, so, yeah, so I think I think one thing that I think a lot about, right, is to think about. How do people? How do these NLP systems participate in language in these in these um, social arrangements by perhaps distributing, helping to distribute these resources unequally? And then, um, how do they represent people in a harmful way, um, or kind of recirculate or reproduce kind of very old and very pernicious, very persistent ideas um, about different kinds of language, different kinds of speakers? So in 2020, we had on Dr. Emily Bender, um, and she she kind of gave us a 101 of, of NLP. Ooh, she's wonderful. Uh, yeah, she's great. Um, but uh, one thing that I've been thinking about uh, since that interview is to what degree are these just like problems of language and like politics of language? And to what degree are these like new issues with NLP technology? And I'm wondering from your perspective, like what... What's different now? Is there anything different now, now in this like technological space than what's happened for thousands of years in the language space? That's a great question. Um, definitely, I think the root of all these things lies outside of NLP, right? Um, the ideas that, you know, the judicial systems like don't require NLP to treat like, you know, defendants who speak or, you know, or witnesses who speak African-American language um, as less valid, right? Like um, these things have existed for a very long time, right? And, and you know, um, and in many ways, they arise out of processes of like colonization and this kind of thing, right? So they're old. Um, and I think it is both um, like helpful to recognize that, sometimes frustrating because you do feel like in many ways when you're trying to address this for NLP systems, right? If only it feels in some ways like stopgap measures, right? Like, you know, band-aid solutions for a problem that outside, lies outside of NLP, right? So um, we cannot really make equitable or just NLP systems without dismantling these larger language ideologies, right? It's just not possible. So um, I think uh, one, I think things that are maybe, um, I don't want to say unique, but maybe different about technologies is, um, you know, kind of, I think, scale and perhaps an opaqueness, right? So the scale at which they operate and the difficulty of challenging them, um, in part because um, I think it's the case that most of the NLP systems that, that we touch on a regular basis that really users interact with are black boxes. Sometimes we're not even aware that they're operating. Like, you know, how many NLP systems do you think, like, you know, affect what you see in your, um, affecting maybe the ads that you see or your search results or, um, you know, like whether or not your post made it to social media or whatever, right? Like sometimes these are not really visible to you. Um, and I think um, this means that they likely have significant impact, but we cannot see that. Neither researchers nor the people who actually interact with them, right? It's really not tangible. You can't. Um, and you, there's no recourse. Right, and you can't really refuse to participate, effect, you know, effectively. So um, I don't think these are, in some ways, they're not brand new, right? Like the education system, right, has long 
um, kind of like participated, right, in these kinds of things. And it's also very hard, right, to challenge the education system, right? Um, so uh, the, the fact that these things, that, that, that these things like persist, right, these language ideologies um, persist, right, because like, um, you know, they're institutionalized because institutions reproduce them, right, has meant that there's always been some degree of opaqueness and scale that they're very difficult to challenge. But I think um, uh, uh, technology takes it to perhaps a new level. But that is a great question, and I'll probably be mulling it over this whole afternoon after this. Um. <laughs> so to wrap up, Sulin, um, for those of us who are um, either NLP researchers or just NLP uh, consumers, <laughs> whether we realize it or not, because this is such a complex issue that is largely hidden from all of us, like you were just saying, do you have any advice for how we can keep a healthy dose of optimistic skepticism when it comes to NLP systems? What do you do? But I think, I mean, I, th I think one thing, right, is to be kind of attentive, like just, you know, people are talking about this, right? So one thing I've seen this actually, like, this is brand new, right, since like, you know, kind of recently is, um, people are talking about this and like the, these issues specifically related to large language models and similar things have actually made it right into public discourse because, for example, of, um, you know, the, like the wonderful work by Tim Nitt and like um, Gabriel and Margaret Mitchell and also their treatment by Google, right, and all these things. These things have made it into the news. Um, and I think this like represents like kind of an important, like a significant moment, right, I, um, that um, the fact that uh, like these these things, these language models exist at all, right? The fact that they actually like underpin um, a lot of products, like across a lot of companies, um, the like the the kind of so the fact of their existence um, and the harms that they can give rise to, and the fact that they made it into public discourse, for me, I think represents like a really important um, moment, and I think it is possible for people to um, put pressure on these companies, particularly folks working for these companies, right? Um, it is possible. Um, to put pressure on them. But I think like broadly, um, the the landscape needs to change in a way that makes it possible both um, for us to dramatically change like who's at the table and also kind of what we know about these systems operating in the first place, right? And I think um, it is really impossible to make sense of the social implications of these systems, right? To even be appropriately skept you know, skeptical or optimistic or whatever, right? Without even knowing what the landscape looks like. Um, and I think, you know, what we need to do, um, both as technologists and as consumers, right, is to push for, um, uh, like, push for much um, better accounting of this landscape and, like, where kind of these systems, like, you know, where they touch us and um, in order to think about alternatives. And Sulin, uh, for folks who want to follow up on some of these ideas or join this conversation or just reach out to you, um, how can folks do that? Yeah, please email me. Please get, get in touch with me at um, sulin.blodget and microsoft.com. Um, I also have a website. Papers are there. Um, but I, as you can probably tell, love talking about this and um, would love to talk about it with anybody who wants to get in touch. So thank you. Sulin, thank you so much again for coming on this show, and we will be sure to include all those links and many more in our show notes. But for now, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We want to thank Dr. Sulin Blodgett again so much for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And Dylan, let's start with you. What is your immediate reaction? 
Yeah, I really loved this conversation because although we were talking about bias specifically in natural language processing systems, we were also talking about what it might mean to create a universal language or a universal definition uh, for a phenomenon that might be experienced in such subjective ways. And uh, for me, again, coming from a philosophy background and also in like human computer interaction, it's like this is one of those thorny things that's like whoa how do you take this concept of bias and then actually do something with it because i think it's so easy to say oh yeah there's bias over there you know let's let's just get rid of that thing like let's not look at our social anything let's just say oh okay bias is in our technology let's get rid of it which we've talked about um, before on the show why that isn't necessarily the way to go and in this conversation i think uh, sulin really parsed out uh, some of the difficulties in how you actually design um, for bias and for a diversity of definitions around bias. But what about you, Jess? What did you come out of this interview thinking about? Honestly, pretty similar thoughts to you. I think this is like... <laughs> Great minds think alike. Some say. <laughs> this is a reoccurring theme that I think we've seen quite a bit on this show and just in the field of AI ethics and responsible technology is this issue with trying to take something that is qualitative and societally based in nature, like something that is so subjectively human and then attempting to quantify it so that we can feed it into models and make predictions with it and do whatever we will with it computationally. And I think that I, this is just such a perfect example of how something so subjective, like even defining if a word is toxic or not, or stating whether a human is happy or not, things that are so obviously subjective are being fed into models. And these models are assuming that there is a right answer, like Sulin was saying, or these models are assuming that there is a neutral answer or a quote, true answer. And sometimes in life, because humans are so ridiculously complex, that that's just not possible. And so now we're dealing with the impacts and the aftermath of like attempting to turn something that is inherently unneutral and subjective into something that is seemingly neutral and objective. And there's clearly a lot of harm and uh, unintentional consequences that come with this. And let's talk about toxicity, because for me, that was one of the most interesting parts of the conversation, especially in terms of machine learning algorithms uh, categorizing microaggressions. So like, how can a NLP system really categorize toxicity in the first place? And especially when there are certain words like deaf or uh, certain elements around like maybe mental illness and those immediately put this like toxic red flag up for the system when maybe in within the context, it's like the most healing thing, non-toxic thing possible for the users. And again, this goes back into like human-centered design. What does it actually mean to have algorithms that respond to, you know, real context in real time so there isn't this uh, damage done by saying, okay, here's this, this sweeping statement. But again, we, then we get to this microaggression part where you're like, okay, but even within, like, even if you take the machine out of it, like, I would not say that society, quote unquote, society, as if it could be one single thing has come to terms with what 
uh, like a common definition around microaggressions, or at the very least, there are uh, different camps around what a microaggression consists of, depending on identity, depending on context, etc. And so now we're asking this machine algorithm to categorize based off of that. And Sulin, I think, did an awesome job unpacking why that is so difficult. Um, Jess, what do you, what do you think about toxicity? I think it's really toxic. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's well said. Uh, just same, same amount of toxicity as the That's a hot take. Except That's a hot take. Not actually. So I, I completely agree with you. And I think this is kind of like the crux of the issue that we're, that we were getting at with Sulin today was that um, these things are incredibly contextual. And so what I was saying before with like the human nature of subjectivity, there's certain things that humans just disagree on. And that's because they're super subjective and I think toxicity is definitely one of those things. I mean, I don't think that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we've proven that toxicity is one of these weird, subjective, sticky areas. And it's not just that maybe me and you, Dylan, might differ on what we agree a word to be, like the level of toxicity that a word might be. It's also like me and myself as, as a human, I might look at a word and think that it's not toxic. Um, and then I might look at that same word 10 years later and based off of my lived experiences, I might think it's toxic again. And so that was like the heart of the question that I was asking Sue Lin about toxicity and ground truth labels is that like if we are building systems to guess when something is going to be toxic or to guess when something is a microaggression or hate speech or whatever it is, assuming that there's no human in the loop here, this is just like a purely automated decision there really is no quote ground truth. There is no way that we can label this word as being actually toxic or this word as, as being actually not toxic. We can't even make a sliding scale of the level of toxicity that it might fall, like whichever range it might fall into because it is so inherently subjective. And so it's just getting back at the same issue that we were talking about before where we don't really have a ground truth or a neutral or a quantifiable label that we can give these things that need to be labeled to work in these algorithms. And I come back to this quote that, that Sue Lin said during this interview that I thought was just like spot on. She said, a lot of the time there is no neutral decision, but you still have to make one. And so that's where I'm kind of sitting now after this conversation is thinking like, okay, this feels a little bit hopeless to try to quantify all of these things that are so subjective and to deal with all the unintended consequences and the negative impacts, but we have to make a decision somewhere. So what do we do? Everything you just said, Jess, brings us back to some of the main research questions of the Radical AI podcast, especially around ethics and morality. So we have this subjective space and then we have this possibly more objective space. And then like, what do we, what do we do with it? And then what do designers do with it? Because we can't have this like just radical subjectivity because that, as Sue Lin said, you have to actually do something, right? Like we have these systems, they're out there. And so now we actually need to stake our claim on what is going to be embedded in them. Uh, but we also can't say that, okay, this is toxic and this is not, because what ends up happening is that the people in positions of privilege and power um, end up embedding, you know, the, the status quo concepts of what is toxic, which makes it so that um, people who are already either um, marginalized or decentralized in, in that space or in that system get further decentered. Uh, and so the question is, right, like, what to do. And I think Sulin's work brings us um, to 
to the brink of, of how we do those things, um, which I think is the next step. But I mean, is, is this different, right? Is this different than what we deal with on an everyday basis in terms of language? And that's a question I still have is like, is there something that makes NLP, like the fact that it's a machine and not a human, like there's still language, right? There's still this processing of language and the way that humans process language. It's still like capsules of, of metaphor and images and, and all of this stuff. So I'm still curious about whether these are the same issues at the societal level, like the human societal level, and then the NLP level, or is there something unique about this NLP systems uh, that we need to think differently about than we do about language in our general context? I'm not going to speak for everyone because uh, I'm not an NLP expert, but I have written NLP algorithms before. And so I will say from my subjective experience that uh, I definitely stand in the camp that natural language processing algorithms and any algorithm for that matter that uses data, historical data of any kind to make its decisions or to do whatever it's going to do. Um, it has the same problems that humans have because the data is human data. And so I don't think that just because we're automating these decisions or we're plugging them into a machine that all of a sudden all of our subjectivity can now be taken away. All of our bias can be mitigated and zeroed out like that. I just think that's not possible. And so I just I really appreciate Sue Lin's work and, and Emily Bender and all the other people in this space who are like really focusing in on the issues um, with NLP bias and, and ethics in general, because I think a lot of people do assume that these systems are neutral and they do assume that they have no political or vested interest, when in reality, that's impossible given the data that's fed into them. Neutrality is a myth. <laughs> we should put that as our tagline. Radical <laughs> AI. Neutrality is a myth. <laughs> we, should, uh, we should put that as the title uh, for this episode. We'll see. We'll see what the title ends up being. <laughs> no, I, I think I think your points are, are really well taken, though, Jess. And I, I think that even if, like, the problem of maybe, say, bias or language in um, the human social world versus the robotic NLP world, even if they're the same, then my next question is, like, well, then are the solutions to that um, the same? Which I, I don't know. I don't know what this, I don't even know what solution looks, maybe solution isn't even the framework that we should look at because that's what got us in this like rabbit hole of, well, we need to get rid of bias completely. And so maybe Su Lin's more nuanced view of this is, can be a beacon of hope and light for us um, and for developers and designers out there who are working with these immensely complex systems of language and NLP. And hopefully that beacon of light is enough for us to call it for this episode. Maybe we'll have a part three on NLP bias. We'll see. We can. How deep can we dive on this issue? But for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you, yes, you, to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch our new episodes every other week on Wednesdays. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. <laughs>